Tonight on NJ Spotlight News. Safe haven. Americans fleeing the violent Israel-Hamas war safely return to U.S. soil. It's a bit of a relief to be back, but um, honestly, on the plane, I uh, got a little emotional because I felt like I was leaving my you know, people behind. Also, breaking down the war, a deeper dive into Hamas and Israel's endgame and the fine political line the U.S. walks. I think at a minimum, we're looking at a ground invasion of Gaza that is going to be extremely costly. I think at a maximum, you're looking at a wider regional war. Plus, cops and cannabis. Jersey City sues the state in an effort to halt police officers from consuming marijuana. In the state of New Jersey directly conflicts with the ATF and federal law. Uh, exposes Jersey City to millions of dollars in potential liability. And free maternal classes. Hoboken University Medical Center launches free critical services for expecting moms. It's hard adjusting to this like new postpartum period, so having this resource is really awesome. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. And Orsted, committed to the creation of a new long-term, sustainable, clean energy future for New Jersey. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Tuesday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Hundreds of people have been killed in an airstrike on a hospital in the middle of Gaza City, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. That's where many wounded Palestinian civilians and displaced residents, including young children, were seeking shelter, hoping to be spared bombardment after Israel ordered all residents to evacuate to the southern Gaza Strip. If the death toll is confirmed, the attack would be the deadliest Israeli airstrike in five wars fought since 2008, according to the Associated Press. Israeli Defense Forces say they're looking into the reported strike but haven't claimed responsibility, while troops amass near Israel's border with Gaza to begin a ground operation against Hamas terrorists. Israel's continued response to the military regime's brutal October 7th attacks that killed more than 1,400 Israelis, 30 Americans among them, and took 200 people hostage, the deadliest attack on Israel in 50 years. So far, according to Gaza medics, nearly 3,000 Palestinians have been killed in the counteroffense, and the number keeps rising. The deadly blast on the hospitals comes as President Biden prepares for a visit to Israel, and the conflict escalates with humanitarian conditions in Gaza growing more desperate. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan was at Newark Airport this morning as flights arrived directly from Tel Aviv with those fleeing to safety, while many others in Israel and Gaza have not. Families hugged each other tight, meeting loved ones from Israel on the international arrivals ramp at Newark Liberty International Airport. For some Americans escaping the rockets and explosions and air raid sirens after waiting days for a flight out of Tel Aviv felt bittersweet. It's a bit of a relief to be back, but um, honestly, on the plane, I uh, got a little emotional because I felt like I was leaving my, 
you know, people behind. We were planning on coming back last week, mm -hmm. my wife and myself. But David Zelig flew home to Teaneck alone. His daughter's a soldier in Israel, and his wife chose to stay there with her. Zelig had to return to work in New Jersey, his eyes filled with tears. I didn't want to come back. I, I don't know. I don't know how long I'll be able to stay. Me and my daughter went for the holidays, for the Jewish holidays. Uh -huh. The first week was amazing. The second week was a disaster. Near Yosef's flight got canceled when U.S. Airlines suspended service to Tel Aviv, trapping thousands in the war zone. Folks arriving this morning described running for shelter in safe rooms, ducking for cover under the Iron Dome defense, and expressed dismay at some U.S. news reports. We were very disappointed to hear about um, the demonstrations in America supporting Hamas, which makes absolutely no sense. There is absolute evil in the world. Hundreds of Palestinian Americans Americans are still trying to exit Gaza into Egypt, a work in progress for U.S. diplomats trying to arrange a safe crossing. It took almost a week for the Biden administration to charter flights out of Tel Aviv for thousands of stranded Americans who definitely noticed that other nations acted swiftly to airlift their citizens out. Wake up, Washington, because over a dozen countries sent planes to Israel to take their citizens home. Who do you think wasn't on the list? The good old USA. Some of the flight itineraries out of Israel make several hops. For example, from Tel Aviv to the island of Cyprus, then to Athens, and then on to here at Newark. The U.S. Embassy is asking Americans in Israel and the West Bank to register online for charter flights. So we were lucky to find this one. There were the last two seats on the, on the flight, yeah, the flight was packed. I mean, we worked with a few uh, travel agents and we were finally able to get on a lot, but it, it was stressful. Shlomo Schwartz and his family live in Florida, but boarded the first flight they could book out of Tel Aviv to Newark. People arriving here this morning flew in 12 hours nonstop on El Al or JetBlue. Oshri Shalji drove up from Maryland, spent a couple of hours dozing with his daughter, pacing the terminal, waiting for his in-laws to arrive, and then more hugs. We brought them here, you know, so they can, everybody will feel safer, but our heart is with, you know, the, um, the hostages yeah. and the people who got killed and I mean that's where our heart is. Hamas claims to hold almost 200 hostages, possibly some from New Jersey, but negotiations over their release remain deadlocked. Israelis like Eliezer Gross flew in to raise money and support for the war effort. He's grateful for President Biden's visit to Israel tomorrow. God bless America for your support, for your help. God bless you all. This is all family. The, the unity of this, of Israel, of the Jewish people is something that we've always heard about. We felt on and off through history. Everyone who lives there really feels strongly that it's their country and they're not, they're not leaving it. They're not deserting it. But Americans pushing mountains of suitcases at international arrivals felt lucky to be home. In Newark, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. President Biden's visit to Israel is intended to show support for the United States' closest Middle East ally, but he's also slated to address Israeli leaders on how to prevent unnecessary civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is already on the ground, first Israel and today in Jordan, laying that framework and ushering humanitarian aid that had previously been blocked. 
all part of apparent efforts to head off a wider regional conflict, with the United States uniquely positioned to influence both Israel and key Arab officials, as many hold on to hope of a reshaped Middle East and, importantly, diplomatic normalization. For more insight on this war and the political players involved, I'm joined by Michael Boyle, an associate professor at the Rutgers-Camden Department of Political Science who focuses on terrorism and political violence. Dr. Mike Boyle, thanks so much for joining me. Let me ask you first, uh, Secretary of State Blinken is in Israel. President Biden is also making a visit there. What is the U.S. foreign interest in this war? So a couple of things. And I think part of the reason President Biden is there is to signal the closeness of the U.S. to Israel and backing the United States up at essentially their moment of peril. But I also think there's a wider set of strategic objectives there. I think the United States is also trying to ensure that what happens next in Gaza is consistent with U.S. interests. So in other words, is there a plan for the administration of Gaza if there is a ground invasion from the north? What's going to happen in terms of a humanitarian corridor? So I think there's really two things going on there. Part of it is signaling political support, signaling also okay, what do we want this post-war situation to look like, and how do we make sure this doesn't get out of control and become a wider regional war? What is it specifically that Hamas wants? Um, and is there an opportunity for that to be gained at this moment in time where things stand? So, you know, as a broad question, Hamas has traditionally been an enemy of Israel, and its charter calls for the destruction of the Israeli state. When we think about its, its immediate tactical objectives, what did it want to do in this specific raid that it essentially abducted 200 to 250 people, we think? There's a there's a debate over what it immediately wanted. Uh, one thing that has come out recently from some Hamas statements is that they seem to think that this would produce a prisoner exchange. And that is something that has happened in the past, that you know the abduction, for example, of Gilead Shalit from the Israeli army years ago negotiated uh, in the long run, got Palestinian prisoners out of jail, which was to the benefit of Hamas. And they said something in the last couple of days about, well, we thought what we would do is do this raid and we would later get you know, some negotiation over prisoners. And I think the real issue here is that Hamas has miscalculated. They've miscalculated the degree of anger this is produced within Israel, the degree which is seen as a moral threat to the state. And I think what we're seeing now is a situation where the situation is spiraling out of control, in part due to that miscalculation. You mentioned moral threat, and it makes me think of proportionality. We have a number of U.N. officials and other humanitarian officials who have said that Israel's response in Gaza is not proportionate, that both sides have committed war crimes. If you can—and this is such a loaded question, but the conflict there has been going on for, for so many years, um, the occupation of Palestine, um, and the way with which this is viewed, the fact that violence has been essentially bubbling in corners uh, of the country for, for many years. Um, and so, to that extent, can you speak to how this tension has been rising? So, I think there's, there's been a longstanding—obviously, a longstanding conflict for a number of years between Hamas and Israel, and more generally over the Palestinian situation, over the status of the West Bank and Gaza as occupied territories, and the formation of eventually a two-state uh, Palestinian state. So I think in the larger question, that's the sort of background context to it. In the short run, the question is, when Israel strikes at, Ga at Hamas in Gaza, are its active attacks first proportional? And secondly, are they consistent with the laws of war? And so you have a positive moral obligation, for example, to make sure that you don't deliberately target civilians. And so that's the kind of moral and political burden that's put on the Israeli army at this point, which is to say, all right, if you're going to go in and invade Gaza in the north, 
are you going to do it in a way that ensures a degree of civilian protection? I think that's part of the miscalculation here, is that from the Israeli point of view, their war goal is to destroy Hamas. In order to do that, you essentially have to go into Gaza and you have to go into the tunnels that they have built. And that is a very costly uh, military effort. It's going to involve a substantial commitment of resources and troops. It's also very risky to do this in an urban environment. I think the real question is, what does Hezbollah do? Does Hezbollah do a few token strikes to look like it's resisting but not actually engage in a full-scale regional war? Or does Hezbollah do something more substantial, in which case this could spiral very quickly out of control into a regional war where you know Israel's fighting in Gaza, it's also fighting in Lebanon, and that begins to draw in other actors like Iran and the United States? So I think at a minimum, we're looking at a ground invasion of Gaza that is going to be extremely costly. I think at a maximum, you're looking at a wider regional war. Whew. Uh, Michael Boyle is associate professor of political science at Rutgers Camden. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Federal authorities are launching a civil rights investigation into the state's capital city and its police department. The Department of Justice says it's probing alleged misconduct within the Trenton police force, citing concerns that officers regularly used excessive force and routinely stopped motorists and pedestrians without justification, illegally searching their homes and cars. In announcing the investigation, New Jersey's U.S. Attorney Phil Selinger said Trenton residents have long complained about the department's alleged practices leading to the federal inquiry. Mayor Reed Gushiora and Police Director Steve Wilson say they'll cooperate. The union representing Trenton police officers responded, citing ongoing staffing shortages since 2011. That's when budget cuts forced the city to lay off more than 100 officers. If the investigation reveals the department broke federal law, the DOJ can sue to force changes. Meanwhile, cops in Jersey City are caught up in a fight over off-duty cannabis use. The city is filing a federal lawsuit against the state in a bid to stop police officers from using legal weed when they're not on the job, arguing that New Jersey's adult-use marijuana industry goes against current federal laws. As Ted Goldberg reports, the lawsuit could pave the way for future battles within police departments across the state. Jersey City is fighting to keep its police officers from using cannabis, even while they're off duty. And the city is bringing that fight to federal court. Any reasonable person would say that there should be carve-outs with regards to specific professions. I mean, think about a bus driver that takes your child to school. There is not a carve-out in New Jersey for rules and laws prohibiting that. While Jersey City has approved 40 dispensaries to sell within city limits, they're in the process of terminating five officers who tested positive for cannabis. Mayor Steve Fulop says he's suing the state and the state's Civil Service Commission to clarify that federal law takes precedence over New Jersey law, which doesn't have carve-outs for any job when it comes to cannabis usage. When you talk about police officers and the split-second decisions that they have to make, uh, life and death often a part of that, um, the fact that the laws from the state of New Jersey directly conflict with the ATF and federal law uh, exposes Jersey City to millions of dollars in potential liability. There is no existing test. If anyone wants to become a billionaire, invent that test because everybody is looking. Everybody around the country is looking for a test that can tell whether you smoked marijuana recently or previously. Fulop announced the lawsuit two miles away from Jersey City's two recreational dispensaries that opened up earlier this year. He says the issue is state law conflicting with federal law. 
According to the Gun Control Act of 1968, you can't legally own a gun if you use a Schedule One drug. And according to federal regulations, cannabis is still a Schedule One drug. Independent of what I think of marijuana or anybody else, that is the law. If I provide ammunition to a person, I am breaking the law if I know that they are marijuana user. Carrying a firearm is an absolute requirement of a police officer in the state of New Jersey. You cannot be a police officer if you are not eligible to carry a firearm. Five of our officers uh, chose to, even after receiving this uh, notice, they chose to use cannabis, and as a result, we can no longer arm them or provide them with ammunition. The federal lawsuit publicly names the five officers. Two of them previously sued Jersey City and one reinstatement, but the city is appealing. Public Safety Director James Shea says the issue is giving a firearm to admitted cannabis users, not cannabis usage itself. They insist on claiming that we fired them because they used marijuana, which we clearly did not. As a matter of fact, when they were terminated, we offered every single one of them any job in public safety that does not require to carry a firearm. We offered them those jobs and they all declined. We reached out to the attorney representing the three suspended police officers and didn't hear back. Director Shea is confident that Jersey City will win this case and void the reinstatement of the two other officers. There are no facts in dispute. We all agree that they smoked, uh, th that they utilized marijuana, cannabis, THC. We all agree that they would need to carry a firearm to be police officers. So uh, it should be as simple as a judge clarifying the supremacy clause and that the federal law is supreme over the state law. Attorney General Matt Placken has said in the past that law enforcement agencies may not punish police officers for using cannabis if it's off the clock and doesn't affect job performance. But that hasn't been written into law, which could lead to more municipalities suing to keep their officers from using cannabis. In Jersey City, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. In our Spotlight on Business report, shovels are finally going in the ground after decades of planning. Construction on the first phase of the Gateway Tunnel project will start in the next few weeks, according to transportation officials. The CEO of the Gateway Development Commission revealed at a meeting on Monday the early construction will kick off at Tonnelly Avenue in North Bergen. The work is part of a larger roughly $16 billion project to construct two new Hudson River rail tunnels between New York and New New Jersey, along with rehabilitating the more than century-old existing tunnels still in use. The project has been broken into nine parts, allowing early work to begin while going through a process to qualify for federal grants. The Biden administration recently awarded Gateway a nearly $7 billion grant, which is still being approved, but is considered a major milestone in getting the tunnels built. Turning to Wall Street, stocks soared today after retail sales data smashed expectations and the earnings season picked up steam. Here's how the markets closed. As the state eyes making improvements to maternal health, at least one hospital system is offering help for expecting parents, and it's free. According to CarePoint Health, Hoboken University Medical Center is the only area hospital offering prenatal and maternity classes free of charge and in person. Soon-to-be moms say it's a critical service that many families would miss out on if they had to pay. Raven Santana reports. 
I'm just here to get a little extra like lactation support and ask some other questions, meet some other moms. Allison Kalnick's son is just four days old, but Kalnick is determined to start motherhood on the right foot. It's hard adjusting to this like new postpartum period, so having this resource is really awesome. I don't think my insurance covers like lactation visits, so the, being able to do this for free is a huge help. I wouldn't be able to afford it on my own. Kalnick no longer will have to worry about financial constraints now that free prenatal maternity classes are offered at CarePoint Health Hoboken University Medical Center. So neighboring hospitals, I know the cost is close to $300 and most of those classes are still virtual. Um, we are here in person um, and we have experts in their fields doing the education. Phyllis Camilleri is the Director of Nursing for Maternal Child Health, Women and Children's Services at the hospital. She says they've seen a significant increase in attendance since they started offering the program for free in April. Or since April when we opened up the classes to uh, being free, we have a 77% increase in attendance uh, in our classes. We have prenatal classes. We also have um, safety newborn classes. We have a dad support group and we have um, many other classes that we give free. I have seen other kind of local support groups that charge um, and if you're able to commit to that and um, have the means to do so, that's great. But like, I appreciate the ability to kind of drop in and out of this one based off my circumstances, right? Like if um, my baby is having a rough day or if I had a rough night, like it's, it's hard to, um, you know, be able to make that call if you've already committed funds to, to a certain period of uh, sessions. And so this provides a lot more flexibility, which I think is important to a new mom. What have you noticed since the implementation of this program? Our, my attendance in the prenatal breastfeeding class has quadrupled easily. I do have um, a wonderful, I love to have them facing me, looking at me in front of me so that we can have this one-on-one -on -one interaction and I can read what their facial expressions are kind of telling me. So I, when I say something and I see a quizzical look on their face, then I can say, what's concerning you about what I just said? And then they'll say something back to me and then I'll address their specific concerns person by person. It's my first time here and I'm looking forward to meeting other moms and hearing from professionals versus the internet um, about, you know, tips and tricks for being a new mom and navigating this, this new life. I think it could be a good resource, but you can also go down holes of, you know, maybe something you're experiencing you think is, like, bad um, when maybe it's really normal. Um, so hearing it from the professionals would make me feel better just because hearing like this is normal and how to navigate that versus reading something that seems more concrete uh, and not specific to me. Staff says the service is critical, especially for working class expectant parents who can benefit from the information but may not be able to afford it. We do an in-depth uh, education before they go into labor, before they go in for their delivery, give them a whole education on what the whole process is and so that what they can expect and so therefore an informed patient is so much better. They do so much better than uh, patients that aren't informed. Given the demand for the weekly classes that anyone can register to attend, staff now hopes to expand classes to the weekends. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Raven Santana. Support for the medical report is provided by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association.
Well, we are exactly three weeks out from Election Day in New Jersey, and in an effort to help residents make an informed decision before voting, our NJ Spotlight News team put together a multimedia guide called Gotta Know Jersey to walk you through everything you need to know before November 7th. In this week's installment of the series, we look at the crucial role of the state legislature. All 120 members are on the ballot this year. And the latest video explains why voting for local representatives gives state residents the greatest say in items that impact their lives most. Legislators write laws running the gamut from defining crimes and penalties to property taxes and school aid. Take a look. The New Jersey State Legislature is like our version of Congress. It's made up of 120 elected officials who write our state laws and operate out of the State House in Trenton. The legislature is composed of two houses. Its members are elected to represent the 40 districts the state is divided into. Each district gets one senator and two assembly members. That means you have three lawmakers representing you, and you get to choose them every two years when there's a legislative election. And check out our full Gotta Know Jersey series at njspotlightnews.org under the NJ Decides 2023 tab. And don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. That's going to do it for us tonight. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and by the PSEG Foundation. Have some water. Look at these kids. How are you? What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country the opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member. NJM Insurance Group has been serving New Jersey businesses for over a century. As part of the Garden State, we help companies keep their vehicles on the road, employees on the job, and projects on track working to protect employees from illness and injury, to keep goods and services moving across the state. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.